call Steve Witherup. Calling Steve Witherup. Mobile. Hello? Steve. <laughs> it is, uh, it's been a great amount of time. Yeah, I'll say. Um, almost didn't recognize your voice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, uh, I just gave myself a sabbatical. That's what happened. I just, I just took five weeks off and, uh, I, no, it hadn't been five weeks. Has it been three weeks, two and a half weeks or something like that? Probably something like that. Did you, so not to jump back, but were you, uh, you were obviously alive, but like before caller ID, cause like, you know, obviously I made a joke. I didn't, well, not much of a joke, but that I didn't recognize your voice, but obviously your name pops up on the phone. But do you remember way before caller ID, the awkwardness of trying to figure out who you're talking to as they're talking to you sometimes? I do remember that. Yeah. 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 And, uh, it's strange to me. I heard some, I was listening to the radio last night, driving back from Chick-fil-A and there was a commercial for something. Uh, and it was the guy from the wonder years, whatever the guy's name is. That Fred was, yeah, there you go. Reading the, uh, reading the copy. And it was, I, it was like a sort of like a high thought kind of thing. I'm like, how strange is it? that not just visually we can see someone and know that, oh, that's that person. But from like one person's voice, I immediately knew who it was. And it's not just that he's a celebrity. Like if I heard your voice or if I heard, you know, somebody that went to our church 15 years ago or something, I would recognize who it is. I know that that doesn't like, it doesn't seem like it fits with what you just said, but it's weird to me that that exists and that the experience that you're talking about isn't the constant experience of like, whose voice is that? Right. Well, even take that. I mean, a little bit further, whether it's, you know, recognizing it, your own child's crying or even your own dog's bark type uh -huh. thing, you know, like deeply tied to memory, you know? Ex yeah. And, you know, it's like a, Eskimos have like a hundred words for snow or something like that. And when, when you don't have any children, all babies crying just sounds like babies crying. And I can, I can hear Maggie cry right now and be like, she's just annoyed or she's hungry or, uh, she bonked her head on something, you know, like you just know, you know, the difference. Yeah, that's, uh, for sure. And, and I think that sometimes you probably use that as a way to just not have to deal with it. Like, oh, no, I know. She's fine. I, I know. <laughs> it's like two and a half hours into crying. That's just, right. it, that's, that's just, it's fake. Yeah, it's amazing how often they pull that at 2.30 in the morning. Like, oh, no, she's just, <laughs> she's just having a dream. Yeah, that, uh, to, uh, to tie it into why there's been a big delay. That's when I knew that there was something going on with Chelsea is that, uh, Maggie started crying one night and you know, we've got a little bassinet beside the bed or so she's either in that or beside Chelsea. And because she's nursing, um, and Maggie is a great sleeper. So you hear like two whimpers, two little cries or something. Chelsea starts nursing her and, 
immediately back to sleep. I am anyway. You know, they're, they're doing their thing for 30 minutes. But she goes right back to bed after that. And she started crying. And uh, it just kept happening. And so, I, you know, you do the thing. And I'm sure you know this with four kids. You do the thing where you just kind of roll over and make the covers just a little bit tighter. Like, please don't see me. Please don't acknowledge me. Uh, and anyway, it didn't work. And so that's how I knew that there was something going on. And it was because she was having these stupid headache episodes. And, uh, yeah, so that started four straight weeks of a 10 out of 10 pain headache every single night, like four o'clock in the morning. Oh, and so Steve obviously knows all of this, but, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of CT scans and MRIs and making sure there was no brain tumors and all that kind of stuff. And so, uh, it has been, it has been a hellacious four or five weeks. Yeah, it's, yeah, I mean, obviously I haven't been experiencing it. You guys are in the middle of it, but it's, it's, it's one of those things that's just a whole nother level. Like, um, it's not just, you know, a little bit tired and having headaches from having a newborn child, but it's like this, this debilitating migraine, right? Oh yeah. And, and, and they're not, they're technically not migraines. Once we found out what was going on, it's, uh, she's got this thing where there's, uh, that can happen to recently pregnant women, um, where there's an excess of spinal fluid that causes pressure in the, in the head. And so it was just that pressure that was causing these headaches. But I mean, I know you know this, Steve, but Chelsea's tough as nails. She's not somebody that like complains ever. She never misses a day of work. Um, she's, you know, she's warrior way tougher than I am. And so, when, when I saw her in the kind of pain she was in, I just knew that it was something way different. And, um, you know, she said she would, she would rather have 24 hours of the worst birth contractions you can have rather than one hour of that pain. And it was every night for four weeks, just unbelievable. I mean, that's, that's enough to drive you crazy. Oh, joking. And you can't, and that the other part of it was you can't sleep through it. It's not pain that you can sleep through, like a migraine. And not, it's not that this is not the case for everybody. So I'm not making light of it. But with migraines, there's a hard, like a harsh period to it. And then if you sleep it off, you wake up and it's better than it was, like it's bearable or whatever. Um, there was no relief from this. It was just going to be 12 hours, and then it would sort of go away. And then it was like, all right, well, we got a couple hours of this not being as acute. Let's uh, try to talk and do a few things. And then, you know, we'll gear back up for once we go to sleep tonight, you know, know that it's about to happen again. It was just, I mean, I can't imagine how horrible that would feel to go, go to sleep at night, knowing what was coming. Oh man. Yeah. And I, uh, I know everyone says this, I'm not just trying to sound tough or whatever, but like, I, you know, I have a, what I would call a high pain tolerance and I don't, you know, and you kind of know my thoughts on medication, you know, and that kind of stuff. (laughs) But when it comes to headaches, like if I have a small, like I'm going for the over the counter Advil. Yeah. Right. 
it's just it's different it's it's not hitting your finger or closing your finger in a door or whatever you know that's just it's it's a different pain that i don't even know how to describe it but it's um it's i don't i don't know it's different i guess is it definitely is yeah Yeah, so thank i mean thankfully uh one of the reasons that we can be doing this right now is that uh we've had four five maybe days in a row um that she hasn't had an episode and it's been because we have you know we know what it is now the the neurologist that we met with guessed it and uh and he was right and so we been treating it and uh hopefully it's behind us um so thankfully thankfully that's the case yeah would you say though that the only good thing that has come out of this though is you've really leaned into your new calling as you feel called to be a stay-at-home dad (laughs) yeah there's uh luckily i was very prepared for it with quarantine for months and months and months um but yeah, trying to uh, trying to be like the armchair doctor, neurologist, healthcare provider slash sole child care during most of the time, and uh, oh my goodness, it was uh, it was rough. It was a rough, and, and I say it's rough for me, and that and it wasn't even happening to me. I was just kind of dealing with the what had to happen for the the house and the children to continue. Uh, so anyway, it was, <laughs> uh, it was not fun. It's been a, uh, it's, I don't know. You know, when it, you just feel like it's just pouring rain right now. Like it just will not stop. And so I am, uh, I'm very, very happy that the clouds have broken, so to speak, to stay with the same metaphor. And you were in Pennsylvania last week, right? Yes. I went up to my, um, my cousin's wedding yeah which was always great to see my see my family and spend a little bit of time with my dad so were they able to do like a little reception thing well yeah it was all it was all outside and very small um so yeah it was it was responsible (laughs) did anybody give any awkwardly long uh speeches or toasts no, and in fact, um, I mean, let's be honest, nine out of ten weddings aren't, I mean, great, right? Oh, a hundred million percent, yes. So but this is, it, from start to finish, uh, it was just, it was fantastic. And um, the, the, like the, the girl or the woman that gave their little, what do you call it when we preside over it um she married them yeah but it she her she did an amazing job it was real short there was a running creek behind them um then yeah the just the reception was just a lot of fun and no one cares about me going on about describing my cousin's wedding (laughs) (laughs) yeah people were like no, they they're calling you after this. Tell me more. I what else happened? What kind of food did they have? Don't leave this 
uh, it's such a cliffhanger, man. Like, seriously, though, have you ever heard a story start that says, oh, can I tell you about my cousin's wedding? My cousin's wedding. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And anyone, anyone, like, move to the edge of their seat in anticipation for what's to come. So, what happened next? Did they cut the cake? Yeah. You know, guys, hold on. <laughs> so... I apologize for that last 45 seconds. No, 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 no. It was good. I went to Pennsylvania to my cousin's wedding. Uh, That's probably the better way to have said that. Yeah. No, I'm I'm glad to know it. Um, We can start talking about the Bible and stuff now. All right. That sounds better. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Matthew 14, starting at 22. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But by this time, the boat battered by the waves was far from the land, for the wind was against them. And early in the morning, he came walking toward them on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, saying, It's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart, it's I. Do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat, started walking on the water, and came toward Jesus. When he noticed the strong wind, he became frightened and began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. So just like most stories that we read, there's, of course, so many different angles and layers, all of which uh, are not in competition with the others, but just, you know, revealing different layers or different um, ways of understanding what was happening. Um, But I think one of the things that stuck out to me as I was reading this this week is a little bit of an alternative um, way of way of approaching this, because and again, I I, I don't want to create this, uh, you know, straw man type thing of like, you know how it's so easy just to say, well, the Sunday school version of this story is blah, blah, blah. But actually, right. you know, because because Sunday, the Sunday school versions, if that's, that's a bad way to label them, but they also contain a lot of truths in them. You know, so so I don't want to dismiss um, any of that when I simply say this, that, you know, we read this a lot of times as a story of uh, Peter's courage and then um that his distraction so like you know taking your eyes off of jesus as chaos ensues around you causes him to fall you know and so um we talked about this last week though steve about or however many weeks ago when we were talking about midrash it there's not one flat meaning for each text you know and then oh, everybody else is saying that the meaning is this, but really, we're going to tell you the actual meaning. It's like, no, it's 
there are a variety of meanings to things like this. Right. Yeah. And and so and so that being said, here's a here's a little bit of a different way to take a look at this story because the reality that that was was happening in this moment was it was chaos. There was this storm um and obviously I've never been on a a boat during a storm but I can imagine that the lack of stability in that moment would be nearly overwhelming even for experienced sail sailors um i'm sure that there there's a point that the chaos reaches that even they feel helpless in the situation um and so in those types of moments or in that moment they say jesus they were scared it says um and they saw jesus walking on the water and and so you know Peter called out and it says they were scared, of course, but Jesus said, don't be afraid. And then Peter reacted by saying that if it's really you uh, tell me to, to walk out on, on the water. And Jesus said, go ahead. And so when Peter got out, he started to walk, but then he sank. And then um, I, I would, Jesus responded after they got into the boat. He, he said, you have so little faith, Jesus said, or um, why did you doubt me? And the, the typical reading of that would be, why did you doubt me as you were walking on the water? Because when doubt entered your life, you began to sink. But I wonder if Peter should have never gotten out of the boat to begin with. Because I wonder if Jesus was referring not to the doubt that Peter showed as he was walking and he saw the waves and the wind. I mean, he already knew that that stuff was there. Like that, there was no surprise that the storm was extremely present uh, to them at that point. But I wonder if Jesus was referring back to when Peter said, if it's you, Lord, tell me to come to you because he was unable to recognize Christ's presence in the presence of chaos. Yeah. Does that make No, I think I think it's a good reading. I think it's I think it's an interesting way to look at it. So because because what happens is Peter's response. So Peter's getting out of the boat. That was this bold courage like well quote unquote courageous act, right? It was almost like it was this um like I need to do something in this moment. And so he he makes this bold declaration, you know, and, and he gets out and he takes this big step. But people paint that out to be this bold act of faith that he knew he was going to be walking on water to Jesus. Right. But my question to that is when chaos and uncertainty and all of these things are floating around you, fear is never the foundation out of which you should be operating. Mm-hmm. And, and and I don't think that that wise decisions or wise moves come out of places of fear. And and that's where this question came from. Out of fear came this maybe this sense of needing to do something. Like I don't know what to do but this I can't stay here. Fear won't let me stay here. Right. You know, so I got to do something. And so 
let me make this bold move because let's be honest, sometimes these bold acts or bold voices, all it is is just this attempt to cover up an enormous amount of fear. Right. Yeah. And the text, I mean, the text says at 26 says, uh, when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified thinking it was a ghost or whatever. Right. So that was, that was the energy that was animating everything. Right. And that's not, that's not the place to be or that that's not, that's not the, that's not the healthy foundation out of which to make wise decisions. And so a lot of times like, okay, so you're, you're in the midst of this storm, you're in the midst of chaos. And I wonder if the, the better direction this story should have taken would give us an example of resilience as opposed to bold actions done out of fear, because resilience doesn't always make these big splash moves. Resilience just does what is needed for the better long-term goal. You know, it, and, and it's not necessarily as distracted by the fear. I'm not saying fear is not present because fear was deeply present in the other disciples as well. And it says, because it says they were all afraid. But what did the other disciples do, which they were not chastised for? Stay they in the stayed, boat. They stayed in the boat because how are you going to get across to the other side? You need to, you need to manage and steer the vessel that you're in. The, you know, the, the proper response in, in this type of moment wasn't just to abandon ship, but to, but to display resilience in a way that just navigates the vessel in the midst of the chaos, believing that the Christ presence is coming toward you. Yeah. 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 Oh, I like that. I, I mean, I think the pushback to, to this reading would be that Jesus, that Jesus tells him come, but the, as you were talking, it just sort of dawned on me, you know, Jesus another time tells Peter, you know, you're going to, you're going to deny me. You're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows or whatever. And Peter's like, surely not. And all that kind of stuff. And of course that's exactly what happens. Uh, I think I think Jesus knew, regardless of what he said at that point, them thinking he was a ghost. Peter's going to get out into the water, you know, like he knows what he's going to do. He knows his his nature or whatever. Yeah, and also, you know, and again, I I understand that this isn't the normal reading, so you know, just speculating some, but but Jesus obviously knows Peter than better than Peter knows himself, like you said. And so he knows what was needed in order for Peter to uh, learn the greater lessons that needed to be learned. And so like maybe Jesus was like, okay, sure. Yeah. Go ahead, Peter, get out of the boat. Let's see what happens type thing, you know? Um, but just, to, you know, and just to add a couple of, of additional, additional thoughts, you know, just to reemphasize a couple of the, the, the points that it's often easy. It's often easy to mistake big, bold, reactionary moves for wisdom or leadership or courage. For you sure. Know, like, uh, and and uh, 
Right. But, you know, and there's this whole movement of like being, being courageous and bold in, you know, in spite of, and uniquely in your fear, like fear is just something that you can't help but feel, but go do the big, bold thing anyway. And that's sort of like a pop psychology, pop culture kind of, you know, Instagram inspirational thing right now. But, but I think there's a difference in like taking the path of wisdom and finding something that you are called to do uh, and that is uniquely good and, or uh, something that you uniquely need to do and that's birthed out of wisdom and then having the courage to do it even in the face of fear rather than being like, ah, ah, do whatever, do the big thing, you know, like just do something rash. Right. Because that the energy that, that does that is not sustainable. Like the fear, the fear that perhaps led to the bold decision to the, to the, this need to feel like you have to make this loud announcement or whatever with with your actions i mean that's that's not sustainable um but what the and and oftentimes it is just simply a way of a way of not having to do the harder work of resilience like like i already said this but but who would who at that point who was not having to deal with the hard work of getting that boat to the side on the water. Well, and you said it a second ago, it's patience as well. Cause Jesus is walking towards them. Right. It, it stands to reason that if he's walking on water, that he can finish the distance that it would take to get to the boat. Right. And you know, and I mean, we could go into this a lot more, but I don't think necessarily need to, but like, you know, the, part of what perhaps this represents is, you know, the chaotic waters at the beginning of the Genesis creation story that the spirit of God did not stop, but hovered over and nurtured into life producing things. Mm -hmm. And so um, what, what Peter was maybe doubting was that this Christ presence could bring life producing things by not controlling and stopping this chaotic storm, but by simply just riding the waves and navigating it and hovering over it. Like, like the spirit did at the beginning of the creation story, he needed something a little bit more, a little bit more, um, controlling or imposing. And like, because surely if, if this really was Jesus, then well, the chaos would stop immediately. You know, if this is really you, like my doubt is, is the Christ presence really bringing life out of the chaos as opposed to just simply putting a halt to it. Right. And, and to talk, to speak to your point about what's sustainable, I mean, outside of, and I shouldn't have said stands to reason earlier because anyone walking on water doesn't stand to reason. That's, you know, obviously the whole thing is wild. Um, but outside of the miraculous hand of Jesus in this, Peter drowns in this scenario. 
you know, the, the big courageous, bold thing. It's like, sometimes, sometimes you're not like, sometimes courage doesn't help you like jumping out of a, an airplane without a parachute. It takes courage to do that. And also you're going to die, you know, it, like, well, unless you're uh Keanu Reeves in point break <laughs> or, or the guy that actually was in a wingsuit and, and landed without a parachute, like on a big slide that they made, like he pointed himself to this large slide and then it, it matched the angle that he was at. And he landed on the ground unharmed with no parachute from like, you know, 15,000 feet. <laughs> right. But, uh, but to your point, um, sometimes like, so, so big decisions seem as if that's the, the biggest hurdle. So like, you know, I don't know if you're miserable in your job and like, and someone's just encouraging you to take the leap to, you know, quit and pursue your passion of fill in the blank. Give me a absurd passion. Uh, juggling. There you go. Uh, you you know I've always wanted to juggle, like you know. So, um, so the hurdle a lot of times is like listening to the Tony Robbins type, you know, speaker that just says, "Just go in and quit." Blah blah blah. Do all these things, but it's like you don't need courage once because the <laughs> right. path the the path to where you need to go the path to the life producing things you're going to need courage upon courage upon courage because it's going to be marked with difficulty after difficulty you know it's not just that single wall to climb and so yeah it's not as if yes peter all he needs to do is muster the courage to jump over the boat and then everything else would be fine you know the the heart like i said before the harder play in this moment would be just to maintain the 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 resilience and the courage needed to navigate the storm. Yeah, I I think it's I think it's all a very good point, and it and it resonates with you know my experience and experiences of friends, whether it's you know overcoming addiction of some kind. I, I know so many so many addicts that have made big, bold, grand gestures of this is the last whatever, and without, without the slow and tedious work of like micro courage for lots and lots and lots of little decisions, that one big act is not going to carry you. You know, it, it, it takes something more than just one single burst of a large amount of courage. Yeah. And again, you know, keep going back to the same point a little bit it's not the foundation that creates sustainable path. Like, um, Oh, who was it? Someone was saying basically. So if you, you know, using the, um, I don't know, a building is, is the analogy or whatever, but it's like, you can go into a structure and anger, anger can pick up the sledgehammer and destroy it, you know, but, but that same energy is not sustainable to the point of building something more beautiful. Mm -hmm. so, and I mean, in that uh, talk a little bit about the old Testament text. I mean, that kind of speaks. Yeah. I think it, I think it plays, that. plays into it perfectly. Um, so 
the Old Testament text. It, should I read the whole thing? It's just 3, 1 through 15. Sure. Okay. Exodus 3, 1 through 15. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led his flock beyond the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. He looked, and the bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed. Then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Come no closer. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place which you're standing is holy ground. He said further, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I've observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings. And I've come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the country of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And the cry of the Israelites has come to me, and I have seen how the Egyptians oppress them. So come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He said, I'll be with you. And this shall be a sign for you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. But Moses said to God, If I come to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you. And they ask me, What's his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said further, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this my title for all generations. Yeah, I, I think what's so striking to me about the text, and similar to what we just talked about, Peter, is that you know the text starts with uh, Moses is keeping the flock of his father-in-law, um, and he leads the flock, it says, beyond the wilderness. And he comes to the mountain of God. And so he's he's far away from everything, far away from the action. He's fled Egypt after he killed someone out of anger. And he's, you know, far side of nowhere. And he sees a bush that's burning but not being consumed. And when he turns and looks at it, then God gives him this message. The message he receives is a liberating message. You know, it's <laughs> it's this profound, you're going to go to the very center of where power and empire exist. Like, ex you're going to go to the, the belly of the beast of your oppressor, your people's oppressor. And... Um, but the message that he receives is only received after he notices this bush on the far side of nowhere. And to me, the thing that sticks out is that like 
and I know it sounds cheesy, but it's the thing that's been rolling around in my head all day, is that liberation comes after contemplation. Like, you you can't get the wisdom of God. You can't get the 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 thing that you're uniquely called to do, which is going to require great courage and which is going to actually change the world forever. Um, you can't get that out of just trying to drum up courage in yourself to do something big. You can't get it out of a place of just being blindly pissed off. It It's going to take something more than that. Does that make sense, Steve? Well, what happened? I mean, why didn't, why didn't God call Moses to lead this liberation of the Israelites after he killed the Egyptian? I mean, you, we didn't read it as part of the, this story, but if, if we remember, the, uh, so Moses was in a sense raised as an Egyptian, and so he wasn't one of the enslaved, but he witnessed an Egyptian um, treating one of the Israelites extremely poorly, and it conjured up this anger within Moses. And so he reacted in a way that led him to take the Egyptian's life. He murdered him. And so, so God obviously saw a passion for justice within Moses at that moment. He saw the willingness to turn his disdain of that injustice into action. So why didn't he call him to lead this liberation at that moment? And I think that the answer to that is the same reason that I, I um, the same reason that, to what we spoke about in the gospel text is that wasn't sustainable. That wasn't, the, the true path to liberation looks a little bit different in the eyes of God. And so, so fear is not at its foundation and anger a, and a willingness to do something brash or do something that requires gr- great courage is not the primary prerequisite. No, it's because it's, it's because what's on the other side, like, cause liberation, liberation is a beautiful thing. Liberation looks, looks so much different so much more beautiful than just, the oppressed gaining control of the oppressor, you know? And so God's long, long path toward liberation looks, looks very different than Moses's initial interpretation of that. And so what, so what did Moses have to go through then in order to hear the call on his life to actually lead this liberation or lead his people toward this liberation i mean you spoke you spoke to it what what happened to moses that that better created a vessel willing and able to receive this message from the burning bush i mean exile wandering uh nearly losing his mind uh all all of those things after that lead him to being alone with a flock of animals on the far side of nowhere. And he has this mystical encounter with a burning bush that we, you know, it's a, obviously a really famous passage, but the thing that, that, that to me just sticks out in this is that not just, not just 
this bland kind of hearing from God or like an encounter with God kind of language. But the actual content of the message, I think, is tied to how it was presented and where it was presented. And so he gets his marching orders, which, depending on how you want to read the text, because I I seem to think that if God's like Jesus, that God mourns for dead Egyptians in the same way that he mourns for injustice towards the Israelites. Uh, but even if you read it a different way, you know, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, there are a lot of Egyptians that die on the other side of this. So it wasn't just that he killed them. It's that it was, it, it was a different thing. It was a whole different animating energy and kind of um, one, one is trying to take control and take the reins and say, I'm going to, I'm going to give in to my anger and do exactly what I want to do out of ego, out of flesh, out of whatever. The other one, you know, the text says Moses is terrified to go to Pharaoh. In one way, he can flex and kill someone and, you know, let his ego run wild. And the other one, when he receives the marching orders, he feels deeply terrified and afraid because it's a much greater, much larger, and much more disruptive task than just killing an Egyptian and, and being led in that way. So I think that I think the message and uh like the liberating message that he was giving those those mar or that he was given those marching orders are tied to how he received it and i don't know that he could have gotten that and accomplished what he accomplished outside of how it came to him no i think you're absolutely right about that and you know and it's something that we've said very often as it pertains to this story but you know the the idea of Moses needing to be in a certain place, even to recognize the presence of God within this burning bush and to recognize the holiness and the sacredness of the space with, by removing his, his sandals. He, he was a different, he had different ears in this moment, different eyes and different um, to use your phrase. He had a different animated uh, animating spirit um, in this, in this moment, a different um, Moses receives the message at the burning bush than was, you know, immediately after he killed the Egyptian. It's a totally different person. And right. And, and during the time from it, it's not as though he didn't recognize the oppression that was happening. Obviously, he recognized that that's what led him to murder the Egyptian um, in that moment. And it's not as though he he didn't dislike the way in which Pharaoh was organizing the world and, and had this deep sense of this need for change. But but he needed to be a different person in order to lead a long term liberation journey. Um, and that, to your point, is something that he resisted The the initial reaction the reactionary response that he had initially out of anger that just slayed the Egyptian, I'm not saying that's easy, but in a sense, that's easier. What God was calling him to in this moment, this new Moses, this Moses who is in a different place, is a very hard, long task that 
is going to test his resilience. I mean, he's like you said, it still is a call for action. He is still needing to go into the heart of where the oppression was happened and speak a very specific word directly to the face of this oppression. Yeah, it's not niceties. It's not social niceties. It's not just like we need to be kinder to each other and, uh, you know, you need to not act out of anger. I mean, he goes into the belly of the beast and says, hey, all your free labor and the thing that animates your whole, I keep saying animates, the thing that your whole system is run on, all those folks are leaving. Let them go, you know? And and then obviously the continuation of what ends up happening with that and Pharaoh losing family from it and all the things that, that come from it. I mean, it is infinitely more severe than what his initial instinct was. And I think that that is such a like important point to me because it is so easy to let the dog off the leash and just let your anger run, you know, because it, it does feel like it's natural. It feels like I, I know what to do when I feel this way, but when God gives you something, it's almost always much bigger than where your anger would have ever taken you. And and is always met with inner resistance to it because you know what it's going to cost. You know how big it is. You know how disruptive it is. Yeah, because if anger, if anger is the sole foundation out of which the response is erupting, then on the other side of it would just be the need to find a new place to put your anger. But if your undercurrent is this healthy, contemplative foundation that Moses experienced, then of course there's going to be eruptions of anger, of frustration, of sadness, of you name the emotion. And of course, there are going to be moments of that where those are the leading force of what needs to be done in that moment, that when that's over, you realize that that was out of the undercurrent of joy and of, of, of a true understanding of what liberation is. Yeah. It's like that, that Heschel quote that I always talk about, about faith being like holding on to a time when you once had faith, when faith, when God was too obvious to even need the name. It's like being faithful. Moses is going to have to be faithful to that experience that he had at the bush. He's going to have to remember that. I think the end of that quote is like, faith is primarily a thing of remembering and and of hope or something. And so uh, he's going to have to remain faithful to that, that experience, that call, that voice that called out from that. But then he also has this experience. You talk about joy, about knowing that God is like woven into the fabric of this world, not, it's not just that God speaks from some disembodied place from the sky. It's that out of the earth, he hears the voice that says, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh and do these things. And so, yeah, I think it's, I think you have to have a, if, if you're going to make any kind of substantive lasting change, it has to, it has to be coming from a different place than just your ego's natural stance. Yeah, we're. I mean, resilience is 
is a product of that. Well, that's what sustains when your initial burst of energy is meant with resistance. Absolutely. Yeah. It's the, it's the thing that keeps you in it. And, um, I w I'll, I'll find that quote and I'll put it in the episode notes or whatever. Um, cause it's a good one. I mean, because in the joy, the, the undercurrent of that, that is joyous is that you are, I, I mean, the, the work is hard for Moses, but ultimately to understand a God who is calling all of creation into expressed potential. Mm -hmm. Like that's a joyous work to be a part of. And you can't take, nobody can take that away. Right. The emotion of anger waxes and wanes. You can, you can kind of dip in and out of it, but that kind of pulsating energy of knowing that God's in all of this and that you've heard the voice and you've had the experience. That's, that's a different kind of position or stance. I talked to somebody this week um, that had this crazy mystical experience of, of feeling this sense that of course God exists. Like, and it was so obvious in that moment and how that's sustained this person. And, uh, I do just think that that whole contemplative position, you talk about the last four weeks of our life and, uh, you know, your stuff is your stuff. So I, I wanted to give a caveat that it's not as serious as other people, but for us, it was a, it was an extremely like terrifying, scary, uh, four or five weeks and um, all the work that, you know, I've been doing personally and that we've been doing as family before this, uh, the, the inner work, you know, of silence and listening and stillness and all these contemplative things they they do carry you, you know, you do, ha it, it, they're not tools. You're not saying like, uh, I'm doing this for this reason, but that work, it does help pull you through things. And it does feel like it's not specifically tied to, uh, like the situations that you're walking through. It feels like it's outside of that. Like it's untouchable. Well, it creates, it creates a space where you're more easily able to recognize the presence of Christ even if that storm doesn't immediately halt, you don't, you don't have to doubt that the presence of the storm is a negation of the presence of Christ. Yes. Yeah. I, uh, let me pull this Beekner quote up that I love so much. It's our, uh, if we had like a family quote, this would be what it is. We've had it printed and hung up in our house. Um, yeah, here it is. Mine's from Lucado, but go ahead. <laughs> uh, Thomas Kincaid painting, it's your favorite. Um, now it's Frederick Buechner says, uh, listen to your life, see it for the fathomless mystery it is in the boredom and the pain of it, no less than in the excitement and gladness. Touch, taste, smell your way to the holy and hidden heart of it. Because in the last analysis, all moments are key moments, and life itself is grace. That's that's the like 
the the holy and hidden heart of of what we're experiencing uh and calling life like that's that's the that's i don't know that's the special place that i i want to be in where all of it feels like it it's bringing me into what is real and true and um i don't know the holy hidden heart phrase i think is beautiful there well we'll read read the 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 text out of romans this week because to me it um like when we talk about you know the the anger the anger that it takes to uh destroy a house is not the same you know energy that it takes to build a more beautiful sacred space yeah so the question of course is well what what does that look like and to me this text out of romans just is a beautiful depiction of a sustainable um a sustainable foundation for a liberate for the liberation journey so uh romans 12 9 through 21 let love be genuine hate what is evil hold fast to what is good love one another with mutual affection outdo one another in showing honor do not lag in zeal be ardent in spirit serve the lord rejoice in hope be patient in suffering persevere in prayer contribute to the needs of the saints extend hospitality to strangers bless those who persecute you bless and do not curse them rejoice with those who rejoice weep with those who weep live in harmony with one another do not be haughty but associate with the lowly do not claim to be wiser than you are do not repay anyone evil for evil but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all if it's possible so far as it depends on you live peaceably with all beloved never avenge yourselves but leave room for the wrath of god for it is written vengeance is mine i will repay says the lord no if your enemies are hungry feed them if they're thirsty give them something to drink for by doing this you will heap burning coals on their heads do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good that's not a easy that's not an easy text that's not with with because the anger that that i'm feeling that so many of so many friends of mine are feeling the hurt the pain the things that are going on in the world that are you know such obvious and clear injustices the kind of idiocy that exists that's being spouted in every direction right now um that is that is a challenging extremely challenging text it is and it's and if we're all honest it's the foundation that we would like to avoid um this might be trying too hard to impose it back into that gospel text but to me that roman text is the description of of staying in the boat recognizing that christ's presence is coming and is with you in the midst of this and just finding the resilience to to get to the other side mm-hmm. it's, it's it's not a description of out of fear just jumping out of the boat and saying i've got to do something yeah it's a longer journey it's a tougher journey but it's the one worth committing to 
because it's the only one that leads to a true a true liberation yeah cuz there's a lot of congratulations that come you know in the immediate aftermath of performative anger uh big bold declarations of things and and yet the true work i think is largely goes unnoticed uh is long uh, you know martin luther king's quote that the moral arc of the universe is long and it bends towards justice or whatever it, it it's not going to uh i don't know but whatever the lord tells you to do do it but make sure that it's that make sure it's the lord that's telling you and that it's animated by all the things that that romans text talks about we're loving what's good and hating what's evil and you know it's not a, it's i i, I want to be careful it's not about like um this kind of bland christian niceness that people are using to say we we can't we can't be mean we can't uh we can't talk about things that aren't um you know, aren't, aren't good and kind and fun and whatever's excellent and trustworthy and all those things. Think on those things. Don't think about it. I mean, God loves justice. What I read this week where Jesus says, he opens Isaiah's scroll. He says, God's put his hand on me um, to, to bring good news to the poor, to set the captives free, um, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So God cares about justice. God cares about the poor. God, you know, it, it's just how, how do we get there and, and what is the animating energy that does it? And I think that that's the challenging part for me in this is not to, not to take the shortcuts that, you know, garner applause from people and make me feel good about it. At least I get to do something, you know, at least I get to make some noise. Uh, but that the, the work of justice is much slower and, um, and is going to come on the far side of contemplation. Yeah, to your point, this the the Romans text does not describe disconnecting yourself from the realities around you. Yeah, absolutely not. Weep with those who weep, it says. Right. That's it's the opposite of that. It's it's deeply immersing yourself in the reality that surrounds you, but in a way that um aligns yourself with God's path to liberation. Amen. Amen. I feel like that's a good stopping point, Steve. Uh, we pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.